I think this is the first message I've given uh, just to the, to the camera. Uh, I, I trust that there are people on the other side listening, but I'm not gonna have the feedback of people laughing at my jokes tonight, which I'm a little bit worried about, but then again, that's basically what Chris faces every single Sunday night that he preaches. Um, again, no one, no one laughed there, wow, okay. So uh, last week we got into this series that we're calling Good Times, Everything is Awesome, based on 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. And I think this passage, uh, Phil, Phil sent this scripture to Chris and I weeks ago, and man, the Lord just gripped my heart with it. This is, I believe this is what God wants us to focus on and emphasize right now. Also getting our, getting our kingdom values from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. So we got into this last week and I think noticed and learned a handful of things. Number one is that we can expect to see an increase in false teaching in the days leading up to Christ's return. This is the expectation that Jesus leaves us with. This is what the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul shares with us is that false teaching in the world and even in the church will increase in the days leading up to Christ's return. And, and we mentioned last week how this is different than the version of dominion theology or kingdom now theology that some of us have, have heard or learned or just kind of taken in emotionally that, that says basically the church will have ever increasing influence in society and will usher in the second coming of Christ through our own victory. This is not really the picture that Jesus paints. It sounds awesome, but it's not really the picture that Jesus paints. So uh, with, with this, Jesus shares uh, with, with us and with the church in Matthew 24 that many people will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. So th this is not just people of the world growing more worldly. We should expect that to, to, to happen, but even in the church, uh, so-called believers, will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other in increasing fashion leading up to the time of Christ's return. The other thing we talked about last week is the, uh, the new religion of our culture that I described as therapeutic, moralistic deism, and not a, a phrase that I coined, uh, but am, am borrowing that from another. And uh, the, root of, the root of this, and we see this in 2 Timothy 3, one through five, it's the very first thing people will be lovers of themselves. People will be lovers of themselves. And the root of moralistic, therapeutic moralistic deism is the love of self. This self-love theology is absolutely everywhere. And so last week, and I, I would encourage you, if, you've, if you're listening tonight and you did not listen to that message or you weren't here last week, please go back, take, take some time in the car or wherever and listen to that message. I think it's really gonna help you foundationally moving forward through this series. And, and, and I think there was a word that God really had for us through that message last week. So rather than embracing self-love theology that is so prevalent everywhere and, uh, and, and sorrowfully even within the church, God has the freedom of repentance for his children. The incredible freedom of recognizing our own sin and turning to Christ in the midst of that and letting him heal us and change us and transform us, giving us the freedom to face the weight of the fact that we are on our, on our own enemies of God and embrace his grace and forgiveness. Repentance is real, real freedom. And repentance leads us outside of anxiety and, and uh, worry 
and debilitating depression, it leads us outside of that into the freedom of God's grace. Okay, I want to share with you Ephesians 4.28 as we start to get, so we start to get into the message tonight, uh, but this is somewhat foundational still for the whole series. So Ephesians 4.28 says that anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So I recently shared this verse with my children. And I was sharing with them a couple things. One, just my own past. Uh, I, I was truly, in all senses of the word, a thief before I came to know Christ uh, and, and stole many, many things from many people. And I asked my children, uh, how does God transform a thief? And I, was, I was wondering what their answer would be. And, and uh, really, they had no answer because they're, one of them's three years old. <laughs> um, but uh, but as, as I began to ask more questions, they kind of responded in the way I would expect most people to respond. A thief doesn't steal anymore. When God transforms the life of a thief, they stop stealing. This is what they do. And yes, that is true. But in the kingdom of God, and we see this in Ephesians 4.28, not only does God call us out of sin, he does call us out of sin. He calls the thief and commands the thief to steal no longer. The thief must steal no longer. But he does not ever leave us there. He does not ever leave us there. The thief must begin to do something productive with his hands. He must really turn away from stealing. And not only that, not only that, this is the beauty of the kingdom of God. The thief will, will work with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. This is the beauty of what Christ does in our lives. He turns us from from, from those who steal from others to those who give generously to others. And my prayer for this series is that it will help us to definitely embrace our separateness and I think in a, a more clear way, reject the practices and ideology of the world and of, of Satan, to reject those things, but not to leave us there. God would not have us just be critical of the world. He would not have us do that. He would not leave us there. He would have us, yes, be critical of the world in ways that criticism needs to take place, but embrace kingdom values. Embrace them and live by them. So turning away from sin and, and turning towards Jesus Christ to follow him. And with everything we talk about as we go through this passage, and, and we'll read it here again in a minute, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. So grab your Bible if you don't have it already, and you can start to turn there. With, with every criticism we have of the culture, and there are, there are many, because I, I think there are some warnings for us that God has for us. With every criticism, we cannot leave it there. We must embrace kingdom living, following our King Jesus. So let's read 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It begins with this strong phrase, but mark this. We've got to know this. We've got to. We, we must hear this warning. We must hear what's coming. Take special notice. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Okay, we're going to take on two of these adjectives tonight. Uh, materialism, lovers of money, uh, and uh, uh, being boastful. We're going to take on these two things and, and answer a few questions for each of them and, and I think walk away with some kingdom values, some things that we can walk in and embrace and let be a, a true guiding light for our lives. Okay, so what, what does it mean to be a lover of money? We, all, we need money and we need possessions. Uh, we all have them. And I think, I, I, I hope none of us would... Um, would uh, reject the idea that Christians can, can have the freedom to have possessions. So what does it mean to love money? I think in Luke 12, uh, Jesus... Sorry, here, my technology's freaking out again for the second week in a row. Okay, Jesus uh, has an encounter and he shares a parable that I, I believe will help us to understand more fully. There's some things we can draw from this, understanding what it, what it means to love money and have an inappropriate relationship with material possessions. This is Luke 12, uh, starting in verse 13, if you want to follow along with me. Someone in the crowd said to him, that, that is Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Okay, what do we learn about the love of money from this passage? I think the first thing that we can see is the love of money, and we see this in the, the, the situation that Jesus was speaking into. So we have the situation where the man comes up to Jesus and wants Jesus to rebuke his brother. Tell my brother what to do. I want my inheritance. The love of money wants what others have. It is covetous. It is, it is greedy and it is covetous. It cannot celebrate the success of others unless that success is inferior to one's personal success. Like, I might be okay that you have $5 if I have 10. I might be okay that you have $10,000 if I have 20,000. And it goes on and on and on. Uh, this, this is the kind of self-destructive thinking, really, uh, that, that's so destructive towards relationships that the love of money produces. 
Secondly, we see that love of money hoards for oneself. This is in the parable that Jesus tells to rebuke this man. The love of money hoards for oneself. It stores up for oneself. It is interested in oneself. It uses material goods for one's own self-gratification and preservation. It does not think of others. Uh, the love of money does not, does not use resources for the good of others, certainly in no type of sacrificial way. The love of money puts trust in possessions, trust for joy and, and fulfillment, and trust for security. We, we see this in the, the parable. This man was, was overconfident, frankly. He was overconfident because he, he did have plenty of material possessions. And this is where he got his sense of joy, it, or so it seems from the parable. And this is certainly where he got his sense of security. But we know that security in wealth is ultimately fleeting. It will all be gone, as we see from the parable. Uh, one, one day or another, it will all be gone. Okay, uh, the other thing I think that we notice from the interaction that Jesus has that causes him to share the parable is net worth is not the determining factor in love of money. I, I, it is highly unlikely that this man who was approaching Jesus uh, demanding Jesus rebuke his brother for the inheritance. It is highly unlikely that this man was a wealthy man. He was, he was probably quite, quite poor. Those who have plenty, those who have excess, and those who have nothing uh, are all liable to fall for the fleeting love of money. So how is this expressed today for us and in our time, in our culture, in our city, in our country? I think it's really important for us to understand that the average American lives with unprecedented wealth. For many of us, I think for most of us, it's a, it's a fairly small percentage of our earnings that go to meet our most basic needs. This, is, this feels so normal to us. This is not the way that most of the world lives, even today. And it is certainly not the way that most human beings have lived throughout human history. Now, there are definitely Americans and some of us, I think some of us listening, listening who we feel like outsiders to the prosperity in our country. But the fact is, few of us can imagine the way that much of, that much of the world lives. Few of us can even imagine and relate in any way to the way that much of the world lives even today. I'm not sure that any of us can imagine living with the real and looming threat of starvation or death by preventable, curable disease. The average American earns nearly 10 times as much as the average uh, citizen of China, adult citizen of China. 10 times, 1,000%. And if you've traveled abroad, uh, if you've traveled abroad somewhere where people live, I'm not talking about the resort area uh, in Cancun or the DR or wherever. I'm talking about places where people actually live. If you've, if you've traveled much, I suspect that you have a great awareness of our, our, of our wealth, the wealth that we possess. Did you see that episode of The Office? 
where Andy and Michael, they're trying to make a sale. And Andy, the great salesman, and I apologize if you don't know the reference, but the client is, he's sharing about some uh, like wide mouth bass or something that he, that he caught on a, on a lake. And Andy begins to brag about the shark that he shot off his dad's yacht. Or, or I think of years ago, uh, an, ex- an extended family member of mine, you know, none of you know them, um, they, they had a Jaguar that was just a couple years too old, really was just a few years old. And I was married at the time. I made, I don't know, $17,000, $18,000 a year. And my, my clunker was, happened to be broken down and I was sharing it with them. Well, his idea was that we go to the Jaguar dealership together to look at new cars that we both might buy. Uh, brilliant, brilliant idea. Um, the, the point is sometimes extraordinarily wealthy individuals don't understand that they live in a different world. And, and we think this is kind of funny. We love to laugh at how, uh, how pretentious this is or judge how pretentious this is. But here, here's the reality for us. We, we all live in that world. If you are listening to this message live right now or playing it back later, you live in a different world, a world of absurd wealth. The median income in this country today will secure for someone, I, I believe, more material possessions than the median income in any society in the history of human civilization. We've got to understand the, the uh, extreme wealth that we have in our culture. I think if we're to think, if we're, we're to consider these things rightly, Yet nearly everyone will claim that money doesn't buy happiness and, and that they don't care all that much about money. But then how, how do we live our lives? How do we live our lives? Can we live without our possessions and our comforts, the comforts that money can buy? Is, is our vision and excitement toward the future oriented around acquiring new things? What do we think about when we fall asleep? Do we, think about, do we think about something that money will buy for us? All too often, people will proudly claim to not prize money, but instead they prize, instead they prize something that money can buy. This is equivalent. There's no difference, really. Um, food, vacations, houses, clothing, the list goes on. Many will claim freedom from the love of money, but their trust is in technology, their, their smartphone, uh, or some other possession. Or their trust is perhaps in the next possession, whatever it may be. So if this is the world we live in, what, what's the temptation for us? What is the temptation for Christ followers? I, I think materialism is a tremendous tremendous temptation for us. And I certainly include myself in in that us. In many ways, we had no idea what was coming. We just had no idea what was coming even 10 years ago. All of the sudden, social media, smartphones, Amazon, everything changed like like that. It just changed so quickly. We, We weren't ready for it. We weren't ready for it. Anything in the world at our fingertips, and it's cheap, mostly. It's, 
it's almost like all of us have won the lottery. And winning the lottery, if you, if you didn't know, is uh, more often than not an impetus for great suffering in someone's life. Most lottery winners don't go on to uh, lead happy, normal, functional lives. They tend towards self-destruction. We just have so many temporal things. And the great temptation for us is to hold them in truth or practice higher than the things that last forever. None of us would say that a new pair of shoes uh, is of greater significance than worshiping Christ. Obviously, we know that. We know that so clearly. But an important question for us to ask ourselves is what are we meditating on? If the objects of our meditation are more often than not things that money can buy, we are probably struggling deeply with a love of money. Just consider that for yourself. What are the meditations of your heart? What are the things that you're most excited about when you look towards your future, when you think of the things that God is gonna do in your life? Are the things that money can buy? Are they things that will last forever? So what's the kingdom value or what are the kingdom values here for us to embrace? So we don't just reject the love of money and the worship of material possessions. What would God have us embrace and live out? Matthew 6, 33 and 34. Matthew 6, 33 and 34. But seek first his, king, his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. These things are our possessions that people need to live. All these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a political kingdom, but it consists of the people of God following their King Jesus and living according to his commands. To seek first his kingdom means to put Christ's commands and his values at the top of our list. These are the non-negotiables in our lives. These are the things that we will not live without. We will not live without. These are the things that have eternal value, not just temporal value. Loving God, loving God through worship, through prayer, studying and meditating on the scriptures, uh, unity and, and being an active fellowship. I mean, really living life, knowing where people are at, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. It is, it is simply just not enough. It is not enough for us to casually attend church when it's convenient. And I know it's, obviously it's been a struggle for the last three, four, five months, however long COVID's been going on. But I hope that through this season, we have a greater appreciation of gathering together and uh, in, in doing so at the cost of other things, at the cost of other engagements. We have got to spend time together. We have got to spend time listening to solid teaching together, listening to the word of God together, worshiping together, praying together, living life together. These are things, kingdom things. These are kingdom things that have eternal value. No matter what happens, they will be worth something for all of time. Giving generously. Man, this is a kingdom value that cuts against the love of money and material things. Giving truly giving generously in a way that is difficult, in a way that requires sacrifice. This is the kind of giving that Jesus, 
that Jesus admired even in praise, uh, the giving of the widow's might, giving to God through the church, giving to directly also to those who are needy, giving, uh, giving to please God, not for the glory of man. These are some of the ways, these are just some of the ways that we can seek first his kingdom. And I'm certain that if the Holy Spirit is pressing you towards one of these expressions of kingdom first living, if he's pressing you towards one of these things, he will give you the strength to walk in it. He will give you the strength to walk in it. And even as, as you're listening here, just if, if the Lord is pressing you to walk out in something uh, or to talk to someone about something, just write it down. Write it down right now. Take a minute, take a break, write it down. And uh, there can be some, some level of accountability with that. Okay, the second word here, this thing that we should expect to see in increasing measure, uh, we should expect to see people being boastful. This is the, a worldly value, uh, and it's rearing its head even in the church, boasting. And it falls squarely within our, our new cultural religion that has replaced nominal, lukewarm Christianity as the religion of the day. So what does it mean to be boastful? What does it mean? Matthew 6, 1 through 4, I think Jesus gives us a, a very clear picture of what it means to be boastful. So you can listen or read along with me in Matthew 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He does not care what we do if we do it to be seen by others. It is of no value. When you give to the needy, it goes on. Do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, how is this expressed? I think you, I think you see from the passage what it means to be boastful. I think you see that. It, it, it means to live for the glory of others and to share our deeds, our thoughts and our deeds with others so that we might receive praise and glory and adulation. Living with that heart motive. How is it expressed for us in our culture in our day? Moralistic therapeutic deism is all about feeling good. It's all about self, it's all about feeling good. And it certainly feels good to look good, does it not? Feels good to look good. These hypocrites declaring their good deeds on the streets for all to hear, they did have a reward. They did have a real reward because it felt, it felt and it feels good to get praise from others. But it was not a reward that, that lasts or that uh, means much for any length of time, frankly. For us today, it's not only that our new cultural religion rejects Jesus' warning and command in Matthew 6. It actually goes further. It goes further than rejection. If you do not 
proclaim your good deeds and show your credentials, specifically through social media, at least to the extent that you utilize social media, to some, to many, it is as if you've done nothing. If you do not proclaim your good deeds for the world to see and hear. Now, I'm gonna make a statement here that I trust you'll receive, I trust you'll receive rightly, but this is not, this is not a popular statement right now. I don't expect it to be unpopular here in our church, but it's, this is a, certainly a culturally unpopular statement. It is sinful. It is sinful to demand that individual Christians or even churches prove themselves by posting their good deeds to social media. It is so important for us to understand this and embrace this. It's so important so that we can follow Jesus and so that we don't get sucked in to some very real temptations that have been there for us uh, for quite some time. They've been very strong recently, and I suspect that they will only increase. Okay, number one, there is a temptation for us to be ones who make demands on others and pressure them to violate Matthew 6. We cannot give in to this temptation, and we can't treat others in that way. We don't want to be treated in that way. We cannot treat others in this way and pressure them into proclaiming their good deeds. We must not assume that others are going out of their way to inform us of all the good that they're doing. We can't assume that. Uh, We must not assume this of one another in our church, and we must not assume it of other believers in different congregations, judging the things that they are or aren't doing. If you're frustrated, if you find yourself frustrated with a brother or sister because you are assuming, you don't know, but you are assuming that they haven't done enough, you've got to take a step back. You have got to take a step back, look in the mirror, and consider whether you're giving them an opportunity to practice Matthew 6. This has got to be our expectation. And I, I have found that in healthy, thriving churches, when the Spirit is moving and people are surrendered to Him, there are a tremendous number of secret good deeds. People never know who gives them this or that or who, who, who helps them meet this or that need. They, they uh, rarely, if, if ever, find out what is going on. And man, I want us to be that kind of church, but I'm tempted in the same way that you guys are. When's the last time you, when's the last time you found yourself more motivated to share with someone that you prayed for them than you did to actually pray for them? When's the last time you found yourself motivated in that way? I know I have, I know I have. That's a great indication that we are, are uh, given to, boast, to boastfulness. If we want to text someone and say, hey, brother, I'm praying for you. I know what you're going through. Now, certainly there's, some, there's compassion in that. I think there's also compassion in that. We want people to know that we're thinking of them. But we might just want to look like we're people who pray. If we're more concerned about that than really falling on our knees, desperately praying for uh, someone who we know is, is going through it. 
Okay, here's the second temptation. And I, I think this is more relevant for us. I think this is relevant for every single one of us. And it appears, I, I, I hope I'm wrong in this. Oh, Lord, I hope I'm wrong. But it appears to me that this temptation is, is, is only going to grow stronger. There is a pressure like never before to publicly offer up your credentials to the world so that your deeds and your ideology can be validated and ultimately so that you can belong, so that you can belong with others and not be rejected, but be in, be cool, be liked, be on the, on the right side. I believe this pressure is a destructive, stifling force in our culture that tends to promote posturing rather than genuine compassion. And it, it tends to use people, especially those who are suffering, especially those who are needy, as a prop. And I want you to know, we will never do that. By the grace of God, we will never use an individual, another pastor, another person, particularly someone who is in need as a prop to show the world how awesome we are. I will, I will die before we do that. I thank God, I thank the Lord that we are free. We are free to pray, to think, to talk, even to share the scriptures or share our own perspectives, our own opinions with large groups of people online. We are absolutely free to do that. And I also thank God that we are free to remain silent. We are free to be silent even regarding issues of which we care deeply. We are free to be silent. You are, ultimately, you are free to be led by the Lord in terms of how and what you communicate. As long as that communication is Christ-like, is, is honoring, is loving, is good, is promoting righteousness and, and goodness in the church and in the world, you are free to follow Jesus Christ. Do not let anyone take away that freedom. Don't let anyone take away that freedom. If you're a business owner in my neighborhood, you, you will pay a significant price if you do not display the rainbow flag during the month of June. You're gonna pay a price. You're gonna, there's, there's a financial price for that. There's a price to your reputation for that, and, and really even, even beyond the month of June these days. And of course, as Christ followers, we, we reject what that flag has come to represent. We reject that. But imagine for a moment, I know this is maybe a little bit hard to imagine right now, but imagine for a moment that there was a pressure to hang the Christian flag. Now, did you know there was a Christian flag? There is a Christian flag. There's a Christian flag. It's, it's like many Christian things. The graphics aren't that great. The style isn't that awesome. Um, it's, it's a navy blue background with a red cross. And if you are into that sort of thing, uh, I think hanging the Christian flag would be a perfectly fine and, and wonderful thing to do. Uh, it'd be great to hang the Christian flag. But... If the success of my business, my personal popularity, 
or my social acceptability was dependent upon displaying the Christian flag, I hoped to God that I would abstain, that I would say, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to give in and be compelled to share even my Christian ideology. I've shared this with some people recently. Um, if, and again, this is hard to imagine, but if all of a the sudden there was a social movement where individuals and, and churches were pressed to share their belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ via social media, this is our most fundamental belief. It's, it's the thing we hold most dear. It's most sacred to us. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, his victory over death. All of our faith hangs on this. We make no bones about that. But if there, were, if there was a social movement that existed like this, that in order to, to show or prove that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you have to speak in a certain way at a certain time, I hope to God that I would abstain. When people are compelled by social pressure to share their good deeds or, or their ideology via social media, no matter the cause, it does not matter how just or righteous or good or truthful the cause is. When people are compelled to share in this kind of way, it tends to produce rash, disingenuous, and oftentimes self-righteous social media activism. And this is at best, at best of little value. And I, I, I just, I thank God, I thank, I thank the Lord, I'm so grateful that he leads us to, to sometimes he does lead, lead us to speak quickly in a firm voice, even culturally. But I, I thank him that he often leads us to, to be slow to speak, to be loving, to be gracious, to be wise, to be firm. And I thank God that his choosing of us will never be swayed. It will never be swayed. He will always be faithful to us, even if the world hates us. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. Do not mistake what I'm saying. We are free to participate and perhaps even lead and perhaps even be on the front lines of social movements towards true biblical justice and goodness. But we cannot allow ourselves to be led by social pressure. We can't do it. You can't do it. I cannot do it. We must be led by the Lord. He is our King. We follow him, we bow to him, no matter what. And here's the kingdom value. And we've got to strive for this with everything we have to live for one, to live for one. We live for an audience of one. We live to serve Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of the passage in Matthew 6. Don't announce with trumpets, as the hypocrites do. They've received their reward. But when you give, don't even let your left hand know what your right is doing. Your Father in heaven will reward you. When you pray, 
Likewise, don't be like the hypocrites. Go and pray with the door closed in a closet. Live for Jesus. Live for him, not for others. Do not give away. Do not give away your heavenly reward by living for the approval and glory of man. God has prepared good works for you. He has prepared good works in advance for you to do. The moment that you came to know Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we are saved by God's grace through faith. It's not of works so that no one can boast. It's not of ourselves. It is of God. And in that moment, Ephesians 2 goes on to say, God prepared good works in advance for us to do. He has a plan for your life, specific things from your life. Okay, there are a multitude of commands that are, that are relevant and applicable for every single, every, every single follower of Christ. We must follow his commands, every single one of them. We cannot reject even one. But there are works and an emphasis in your life and a direction in your life and gifts that God has given you, passions, desires, ways that he has stirred your heart, that he is leading you in, that he has prepared in advance for you to do. You have got to be firm in those things and to know what he has called you, the way that he has called you to live. Even as you celebrate the ways that other members in the body of Christ live, we're not all to do the same things. Some things, yes, some things we've, we've got to all do. We've got to all follow Christ's commands. We've got to all treat one another in the same way. But we're not all called to the same good, righteous works. God has a specific plan for your life a way to use you in a way that will be eternally good, that will bear lasting fruit for his kingdom and for the glory of his name. He has plans for you that will genuinely make a difference in the lives of others. He just has something so good, so good for you. And we cannot be surprised, cannot be surprised if and when the good works that God has prepared for you, the world does not see as so good. Now they may, they may in some cases and in many cases, but in some and in many cases, they may not see the good works that God has prepared for you as good at all. I suspect that will be the case for many of us and it has been the case for many of us. If this is true for you, you will, you will be in good company. You will be in good company. Jesus Christ did not go with the crowd. He did not go with the crowd. He did not appeal to the crowd. He, Jesus didn't even explain himself to the crowd. He, he let the crowds leave them. He, he let the crowds leave him at his difficult teaching because he knew, he knew what was in their hearts. Jesus simply did what was right. He simply did what was right. Jesus Christ served and he loved in a scandalous way. He spoke and he closed his mouth freely following his father, not following the world. And he was shaken neither by 
threat or adulation. Jesus Christ knew what he was to do, and he did it. Our calling from God, our calling from God must be strong, must be strong. How has God called you to live your life? How has he called you to live and to speak and to serve him? What are the good deeds that he is leading you into? What are the good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do? Know what they are. Know what they are and walk boldly in them. Humbly, humbly. Letting others speak into your life. Letting others guide you. Pleading with others to pray for you. But walk in those things to which God has called you boldly. We've got to pray in faith for a revival. We've got to pray in, in faith for revival, that God would save our nation from self-destruction. But may he also prepare us to stand firm on his word and in his calling, no matter what the cost. May he prepare us to stand, to look to him, to serve him, and to live for that day when we will see him face to face. May he say to each one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. I know those are the words that I am longing to hear. What a glorious day it will be when we can hear those words from our King and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that you would fill us with humility and confidence. Lord, confidence to stand firm in the calling that you've given us. Lord, would you give us freedom from the love of money? Freedom from materialism. God, our hope is not to be in things of this world, and we know that, God, we, we know that, but it is so tempting for us to put our trust in temporal things. Lord, we just have so many of them. Lord, and you've blessed us. You've blessed our lives. You've blessed our, our nation. God, we thank you for those blessings, and we pray that you would protect us from the trap of, the trap of wealth and the trap of materialism. Lord, and help us to live for you and for things that have eternal worth and value. God, and we pray that you would give us freedom from pressure, Lord, um, Lord, and you would help us to live for an audience of one, to live for our King, Jesus Christ, uh, to let others in, to, 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 to be humble, Lord, to listen to others, to, I mean, to really listen well, Lord, to be open to rebuke and criticism, Lord. Pray that we would be so quick to receive criticism from others, Lord, but that we would do it with confidence, that at the end of the day, we will stand firm for our King, Jesus Christ, and we will never, by your grace, Lord, we will never abandon the kingdom values that you've given us, that we stand on, that our foundation is on in your holy, awesome, sufficient, inerrant, beautiful word that you've blessed us with, Lord. We love you and we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Hey, miss seeing you guys in person tonight. Love you guys. And hopefully we'll be right here outside Linworth Road Church next Sunday night, 6 p.m. Bring a friend if you can. And we'll just keep getting in the word and learning how to boldly and confidently follow our King Jesus Christ together. Amen.